Well, good morning. I want you to know it's a real treat and a real privilege for me to have the opportunity to be back with you this morning. As Brother Bobby shared a second ago when he was given the introduction, it was a real privilege for me to be back here just, I think it was three weeks ago. And Brother Mike asked me to come and speak. He was getting ready, uh, actually had gone to camp and was getting ready to preach. And he asked me just to kind of continue his series in the book of Hebrews. And so I don't know if you remember or not, but I had the privilege of finishing up chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of in a situation I'm not used to being in, uh, meaning when I'm invited sometimes to preach or fill the pulpit, you know, it's easy for me to come in, open up several cans of worms and just kind of leave knowing I'm not coming back and I can leave the mess for the pastor <laughs> to clean up. Well, this morning I have to clean up my own mess because <laughs> I came and preached in Hebrews 7 and we finished and we talked about three D's, by the way, from Hebrews 7 at the end of Hebrews 7 and the description of, of Jesus and uh, the, the, the way the passage unfolds for us and talks about him as our great high priest. And then this morning, we're going to pick up where I left off three weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 8. And so while you're turning to Hebrews chapter 8, the title of the message this morning, you can see it in the bulletin or see it on the screen, is The Truth Shall Set You Free. Now many of you recognize those are the words of Jesus as recorded in John's gospel, in John chapter 8. And as we think about those words, certainly we recognize truth does set us free. Truth allows us to see things like we've not seen them before. Truth allows us to experience things that we've not experienced before. Truth does set us free, absolutely. But you know what else truth does? And this brings us to the book of Hebrews this morning. Truth encourages us to take action. Now think about that for a moment. Truth encourages us to take action. Now let me try to illustrate that. How many of you are familiar with uh, these devices that, that filmmakers use? You know, maybe you've heard the, the expression, uh, lights, camera, action. You've seen those devices, that arm slams down and the cameras start rolling. And so when you come to the book of Hebrews, in a sense, that idea unfolds, except instead of lights and, and camera and then action, what we have in the book of Hebrews is truth, then action. Truth and then action. Now, let me illustrate that for you based on what you've already studied in the book of Hebrews with Brother Mike. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, we were given a truth. What was that truth? That God has spoken in these last days in His Son. Do you remember that from Hebrews chapter 1? Uh, the book begins by saying God had spoken in the past through His prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken in His Son. There's the truth. In Hebrews chapter 2 comes the action. What's the action? We need to pay close attention to what has been said, lest we drift away. And so the action in chapter 2 
is a, 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 an admonition to pay close attention, to listen seriously and earnestly to what is being said in this book. You come to Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, and we see stories about God's people under the leadership of Moses and under the leadership of Joshua. That was the truth from the Old Testament. What's the action? Well, part of the action that's being expressed in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is get to the promised rest. That rest still remains. It's out there. And we're to do what we can do as believers to move towards that promised rest. Let me give you one final example before we come to Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 5, it's one of the stronger passages in the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews near the end of Hebrews chapter 5 says, you know, I've, I've got a lot more that I want to say to you about this issue, but I can't because some of you have become dull of hearing. You remember that passage at the end of Hebrews 5? Dull of hearing. And some of you ought to be teachers by now, the writer says, but you still have need to be taught. So there's the truth, kind of an ugly reality. Nobody likes to get that kind of truth. You talk about stepping on toes. So what's the action? Well, in the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, in the very first verse, the writer begins the chapter by saying, so what we should do is press on to maturity. And let's move on. Truth, action. Truth, action. Truth, action. Now, that same pattern we're going to see unfold this morning. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, we are going to read in just a moment some truth that's intended to lead us to take action. But now, here's what's interesting. The action that's being described for us in Hebrews 8, I mean, the action that we're to take based on Hebrews 8 is not given to us until Hebrews 10. Now, so I'm going to ask you to jump ahead to Hebrews 10 just for a second, and I want to read a couple of verses, because I want you to see part of the focus of Hebrews 8 is to help us to take an action that's not described until Hebrews 10. But when we think what the action is, it helps us focus more specifically on the truths we're given in Hebrews 8. Now, in Hebrews 10, look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, well, there's a key word. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is giving truth in chapter 8, giving truth in chapter 9, giving truth in the first part of chapter 10. And then you come to verse 19 and you see the word there, for. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So here's the connection now from Hebrews 10 back to Hebrews chapter 7 which I shared with you three weeks ago and even into chapter 8 now, talking about the great high priest. Since we have one, verse 21 says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the action point. Look at verse 22. 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So go back to Hebrews 8 now with that in mind. So what's the action that the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get us to take based on the truths that he's giving us in these 13 verses in Hebrews 8? The action is this. Get close to Jesus. Let us draw near to him. Part of what's unfolding in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9 by way of truths that are being sprinkled in these verses is the writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to get close to Jesus. What a message. Let us draw near to him. Well, I want to begin this morning reading several verses in Hebrews 8. And then we're going to look at two truths that are expressed in Hebrews chapter 8 that are intended to help us what? Draw near to Jesus. Now remember, I'm a teacher. There's a pop quiz coming at some point. Draw near to Jesus. Well, I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 8 at verse 1. And uh, I think I'll read through verse 6 to begin with, kind of set the stage with this passage, and then we'll begin to think about the truths that are expressed here. Now, here's what the writer says. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Now, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses has warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Two truths that are intended to help us draw near to Jesus. Well, before we study God's Word together, I'm going to invite you to join me for a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being in your house this morning. God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to study your Word together. I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we've had also to sing praises unto you. The reminders this morning that we have uttered as we sang together, as we lifted your name on high, as we, we were reminded about the Lamb of God. And now, Father, as we come to you at this moment, as we open your word before us, our prayer very simply is this, that you would open our ears and help us to hear what you would say today. Father, grant that 
In your son's name, amen. Two truths, two truths from Hebrews chapter 8 that are intended to help us draw closer to Jesus, to draw near to him. What are those two truths? The first truth is this, and it's presented for us in the first six verses, which I just read. Truth number one is this, we have a high priest. We have a high priest. Now look again at verse one. I know I read it a second ago, but here's, here's what the writer says. Now the main point of what is being said is this. Let me just stop there for a second. I love when a writer in scripture does that for us. Do you ever find yourself sometimes you're reading something and maybe you scratch your head and you think, boy, I don't know that I understand that fully. I don't know that I get what's going on here. I'm, I'm not sure I grasp the meaning of this parable that Jesus told or the, the, the scene that's unfolding in Revelation chapter 8 or any chapter in Revelation for that matter. <laughs> But thinking about things that we don't grasp or that we necessarily don't understand, well, boy, we've just come through, or you've just come through, three chapters in the book of Hebrews dealing primarily with one individual, an Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And so where we left off three weeks ago at the end of chapter 7, the writer of the book of Hebrews was kind of closing that discussion on who this guy Melchizedek is and what it means that Jesus is a better and superior high priest. And so you come to chapter 8, and the writer says, okay, if, if, if you've been confused about things, if, if you've wondered about what I'm trying to say, here's the main point. The main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, Sean, you're telling me three weeks ago, you came and preached for 32 minutes, and all you had to do was read one verse and let us go? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm telling you. Hashtag preacher trick. So the main point of what he has been saying for three chapters is simply this. Listen, Jesus is a better high priest than anything ever offered in the Old Testament, anything ever offered in between the Testaments in the period of time historically, anything else that exists at the time the book of Hebrews was written. Jesus is better. We have a high priest. Yes, we do. That's a reality that we experience as believers in the Lord. But you know what? There are some ramifications of this reality too. In verses two through six, a couple of things are mentioned here that even further highlight the ministry of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. One of those comes in verse two. Look at verse two with me. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. A minister, notice this first phrase, a minister of the sanctuary and true tabernacle. So one of the ramifications of the fact that Jesus is a great high priest is simply this, his work as high priest is done. Now at the end of verse one, we saw that he sat down. 
Now, if we took a moment, and we won't do it this morning, but if we were to take a moment and go back into the Old Testament and read when God began to give Moses instructions about the tent and the tabernacle and the furniture and the, 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 the length and the breadth and the height and the materials to be used, there would be one piece of furniture missing in that description. That piece of furniture would be a chair for the priest to sit in. Because the work of the priest was never done. They were consistently offering sacrifices. And so there was no chair for them in the uh, the tabernacle. And so what is so beautiful about what is being said here about Jesus is this. His work's finished. He can rightfully take his place seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His work is done. By the way, that's part of what we discussed when I was here three weeks ago that the work of Jesus is done, right? One sacrifice, one time for all sins for all time. And when Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross, he did not need four months later to go back and sacrifice. No, absolutely not. Because his one sacrifice was sufficient for all time. And so part of the, re, the, the, the ramification of Jesus being our high priest is his work is done. He can sit down. If you want to encourage Brother Mike to, to preach shorter messages, put him a chair up here where, where he can sit down when he's done. <laughs> no, just kidding. Jesus sat at the right hand of his Father. His work is done. There's a second ramification of this reality that Jesus is our great high priest. What is that? Well, you come down to verse 6. Let's skip down there. I know I read it a moment ago, but look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is a mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. So the second reality is this. Jesus brings, he is the mediator of a better covenant. By the way, that's not the first time that's been mentioned in the book of Hebrews. If you're in Hebrews chapter 8, you just either turn back a page in your Bible or look at the, next, uh, the page prior at Hebrews 7. And in Hebrews 7, verse 22, we read this, because of this oath... Jesus has also become the guarantee of what? A better covenant. A better covenant. And so already introduced to us in Hebrews 7 is this idea of a better covenant. And so now we are reminded in Hebrews 8, 6, that because Jesus is our great high priest, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, he's obtained a superior ministry, absolutely, he is the mediator of a better covenant, yes, and that covenant has been established on better promises. So, the first truth this morning that's intended to help us draw closer to Jesus is he's 
a better high priest. He's a superior high priest. So what's the second truth that Hebrews chapter 8 gives us that's intended to help us draw near to Jesus? Well, it's this, and we just read it in verse 6. We have a better covenant. We have a better covenant. So from a a Bible study standpoint, and by the way, uh, one of the announcements mentioned ago uh, for you ladies was to learn how to study the Bible in what was it, 28 days? I can't let that secret get out because I teach a course at the college on, on, on how to study the Bible that lasts 16 weeks. You guys are cutting into our business. <laughs> but it's one of my favorite courses. I love to help students understand the technical term is hermeneutics. Some of you are thinking, Herman who? Hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. And one of the, the things that you learn when you're trying to help people understand how to study and learn more from their Bibles is the issue of context and what it means that a verse or a set of verses come in a section of Scripture, and it's dangerous for us to take those few verses and pull them out of that set of verses that they come in and try to make them say something that they don't say. But we live in a day and age where there are cults and other groups that do that regularly. Let's pull a passage here and a passage there. I mean, it's like kind, of, kind of like going to a buffet. You just pick what you want to get, and you don't, you don't have to worry about the rest. If you don't want the Brussels sprouts, don't get them. And people do that sometimes with the Bible, and we have to be careful about that. So when we come to a passage then, for example, like Hebrews 8, 6, and we're told that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that has better promises, then it would be natural for us as we seek to understand the Bible to ask a question. Okay, why? Why is it better? Why is it a better covenant? And that's what verses 7 through 13 answer. Verses 7 through 13 of Hebrews 8 answer that question and give us four reasons. There are four reasons why the covenant that Jesus mediates or the covenant that Jesus gives is better. One of those reasons is kind of negative, but then the other three are very positive. So I want to touch on the the negative one quickly, and then I want us to to spend the rest of our time the next hour. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not an hour, I know. Uh, But spend the next, uh, the remaining part of our time thinking about those three positive benefits of the covenant. So, so what's the, the one negative? Well, look at verses 7 and 8. Now, these I didn't read a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it logically, if one thing had done what it was supposed to do, then we wouldn't needed a, a, a second one or another one, right? Doesn't that kind of make sense? That's part of what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying. Listen, if the covenant, 
in the Old Testament had done what it was supposed to do, then there would not have needed to have been another. So from a negative standpoint, that covenant has fault. Well, look at verse 8. By finding fault with them, he says. Oh, finding fault with them. So not only was there fault with the old covenant, there was fault with God's people and how they tried to observe it and obey it and practice it. And so from a negative standpoint, that old covenant is lacking. And aren't you glad Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant? So now, like I said, I want to focus on these three positives of why this new covenant is better. So what's the first reason why the new covenant is better? Number one, it's personal. The new covenant is personal. Would you look with me at verse 10? And by the way, before I read verse 10, let me just mention to you, and some of you know this because you have footnotes or reference notes in your Bible. Beginning in verse 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews, who apparently knew his Old Testament pretty well, gives a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, what, why is that significant? Because the book of Jeremiah, if we understand our history, Old Testament history correctly, the book of Jeremiah was written some 600 years before Jesus was ever born. So listen now, 600 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, the prophet Jeremiah said, the covenant we've been following is faulty. Is that not a mind blower to kind of think about for a moment? 600 years before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Jeremiah says, we're gonna need a new covenant. And so these verses here are a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. So now look at verse 10. So what's one of the first positives, the first benefit of a better covenant? Verse 10 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." The first benefit of the new covenant is this. It's personal. It's personal. God says he'll write his law where? On their hearts, in their minds, and on their hearts. Now, how is that distinct from the Old Testament? Well, if we went back to the book of Exodus and, and reread the story of Moses going up on the mountain to meet God, God wrote the original law on what? Moses' heart? No, stone tablets. And Moses brought those tablets, you know the story, down from the mountain and shared them with the people. And so God is saying, though, this new covenant is going to be personal. I'm not writing it on stone tablets. I'm going to write it in your heart. So one of the, the ways we know it's more personal is it deals with us as individuals. Our hearts, our minds. You know, there's a second little clue here that helps us know it's, it's going to be personal. Did you notice the, the descriptive phrases? 
I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Now, know this next phrase at the end of verse 10. I will be their God, and they will be my people. How about those personal pronouns? Any English majors in here? Can I get a witness for a personal pronoun? I will be their God, and they will be my people. If you're seated here this morning, if you're watching on Facebook and you know the Lord in a personal way, He's your God. And you are His possession and His people. So that's part of what distinguishes Christianity from other, uh, uh, other religions or other belief systems. We don't just believe in a deity that may be unknown or just kind of out there. We believe in a God who wants to have a relationship with people. We believe in a God that wants to know us in a personal way that we can walk with, that we can grow to, uh, uh, in relationship with, that we can obey and we can follow and we can honor and we can enjoy fellowship with that God is personal, and He can be my God. He can be your God. Or let me ch change that expression. He is my God. I took care of that years ago, and I am His child. See, part of what makes the new covenant better, it's personal. Well, what's, what's the second feature here? that helps us see the new covenant is better. Not only is it personal, it's practical. Don't you like practical things? Uh, I know I do. When I read through the Bible, part of the reason why I'm more inclined to read through Paul's letters, now I, I'm not gonna, not gonna claim I understand everything Paul wrote, but uh, regularly Paul will tell us things that are intended to give us practical guidelines in our life. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Watch your speech. Pray for one another. I mean, those are practical things, right? It's not just the generic, well, be very spiritual and do the best you can. Well, thanks. That's a lot of help. But Paul puts handles on those things and says, here's what we can do on a daily basis as we walk with the Lord. And so it's practical. And part of what the new covenant is, and it makes it better, it's practical. Look at verse 11 with me, Hebrews 8, 11. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, and from the least to the greatest of them." Now, when we read this, I want to be careful to uh, um, explain something. The writer of the book of Hebrews here is not saying that we don't need teachers or that there is not a need of teaching. He's already addressed that on one level at the end of Hebrews 5. He says, many of you ought to be teachers, but you still have need of being taught. See, part of what happens as we grow and mature in our walk with the Lord and we develop in our relationship is that we teach others. 
and we help others as they grow and help others to mature and help others to, to learn. And so we're intended to be teachers on some level. So the issue here is not teachers or teaching. So something else is going on. So what in the world is going on here? Well, in the days in which Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, in the midst of the things that the believers at that time were facing, Paul was reminding them that because of what God was doing in their midst, there would be no need to teach other people about him because they would see what's going on in their midst. They would see what he's doing in their midst. They would be able to observe the changes that were being made in the lives of people and amongst the congregation that was gathered in that day. And nobody, there wouldn't be a need for people to teach because they would recognize what's taking place. They would see and observe what's taking place. Wouldn't it be kind of a neat thing one day if in Chipley, Florida, that people wouldn't need to be taught about the Lord because of what's happening at First Baptist Chipley. They would just know he's real. They would know he lives. They would know he works in people's lives. They would know he answers prayer. They would know that he's interested in individuals. See, part of what makes this new covenant better is not only that it's personal, it's practical. That's what verse 11 says. And then the third thing, and with this we'll, we'll move to close. It's personal, it's practical, and thirdly, and this comes from verse 12, it is permanent. It's permanent. Now, look, look at verse 12 with me. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. It's hard to keep from shouting when I read that verse. The first phrase, for I will forgive their wrongdoing. Now, I know some of your uh, English translations render the Greek there, I will show mercy. Any of you have a Bible translation that says that, I will show mercy? Some of you? Part of how God shows mercy, and that's why some other Bible translations render it forgiveness, is God shows mercy by forgiving us of our sins. And so this translation says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. God forgives, and God forgets. He forgives our sins. Some, if I were to begin quoting 1 John 1, 9, many of you could finish quoting it because you know 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. What are the next two words? To forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives our sins. But you know that. But here's the, the kicker. 
he forgets your sins. God is not seated on his throne with some ledger. And when Brother Bobby comes to confess sin, is Brother Bobby in here? Oh, gee, he's in the back. Okay, uh, some other brother. <laughs> God's not looking at a ledger and saying, Bobby, two weeks ago, you were here for the same reason. Absolutely not. Because God forgets our sins. They've been taken care of through the blood of Jesus. And God forgets. That's a hard thing for us as, as uh, individuals to practice because we don't forget very easily sometimes, do we? I'm, just, I'm being honest. We hold grudges. We're good Baptists. <laughs> we hold grudges. We say we forgive. But in reality... We've just said a few words, but still in our hearts, we avoid that same person. We try to keep from being around them, try to avoid eye contact. Don't look at them in the eye. Don't look at them in the eye. Don't walk on the same side of the hallway. So we say we forgive and maybe even say it with, with, with good intentions, but it's hard for us sometimes to forgive. Absolutely it is. And it's even harder depending on the depth of the hurt or the wound. Right? I, we're in church. We can say the truth, I hope. It's just a reality. We're not God. But we need His help when it comes to forgiveness. And we need His help to forgive somebody. But what makes the new covenant better? <laughs> God forgets my sin. He's not holding anything over my head. He's not keeping that ledger. Sean, just two days ago, you were here for the same thing. Get your act together, bub. If I go to my father and I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Why is that covenant better? It's personal, it's practical, and it's permanent. See, these two truths in Hebrews chapter 8 are intended to lead us to an action, right? Truth, action, truth, action, truth, action. What's that action? Well, we've got to go ahead, fast forward two chapters to Hebrews chapter 10, but we see what that action is, that we would draw near to Jesus. What helps me draw closer to Jesus? I understand he's a better high priest. What helps me draw closer to Jesus? Oh, goodness. He is the mediator of a better covenant. That will help me draw near to Jesus.
Well, this morning as we conclude our, our Bible study time, here in just a second, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll have a time of invitation. Brother Bobby's going to be down here for that time of invitation. And as God has spoken here this morning, we all have opportunities to draw closer to Jesus. And as you seek to do that this morning, the invitation time gives you an opportunity. As God has spoken or is leading you to make a decision, again, Brother Bobby will be right here and you can come down. Maybe you recognize this morning, I'm a believer, I don't doubt that, Brother Sean, but I recognize I'm not as close to him as I ought to be. And maybe this would be a morning you would say, I want to draw close again. You could come and share that with Bobby. He'd pray for you, and we would rejoice that God has spoken to you and that you've said yes. Maybe you're seated here this morning or watching online and you recognize, you know what, I, I don't even know the Lord personally. What a beautiful morning for somebody to draw near to Him for salvation. You could come and let Brother Bobby know, I want to make that commitment this morning. And boy, we would rejoice. And the angels would rejoice that somebody came to know the Lord. I'm going to close in prayer. Brother Bobby's going to be here and we'll enter our time of invitation. Would you join me as we pray? God, I really am grateful for this morning. What a beautiful passage you've given us the opportunity and the privilege to study together. Thank you. And now, Lord, as we conclude our Bible study time, we offer this time of invitation. As you have spoken, our prayer now is very simply that folks would be sensitive to that still, small voice. And so, God, we commit the invitation time to you, and we ask you to work in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.